the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Clearly, events in the world demonstrate that evil exists in the world. But some are questioning now, well, if this be the case, then it clearly must be evidence that if God was so loving, he would not permit people to suffer evil of that sort. I mean, how can God allow this to happen to people that he claims to love? We'll talk tonight about some of the big myths concerning Christianity as we're joined by best-selling author Dr. Alex McFarland. He is a religion and culture expert, and uh, his new book is called The God You Thought You Knew, Exposing the Ten Biggest Myths About Christianity. And Dr. McFarland, always a delight and an education to have you join us. Well, thank you so much. You're very gracious. It's an honor to be on. And uh, no doubt you're hearing much as what we're hearing from a lot of people around the country that are trying to struggle, they're trying to make sense of what we saw in these heinous attacks in Paris last week. 129 lives claimed. And some would simply look at this and say, well, look, um, this shows that evil not only exists in the world, but raises a big question. If God is so loving, as so many Christians try to claim that he is, uh, then he wouldn't allow this kind of evil to happen. He wouldn't allow this kind of a thing to befall people that he claims to love. Yeah, you know, C.S. Lewis dealt with this more than 50 years ago in his uh, very famous book, The Problem of Pain. Lewis said, you know, what if God made the world such that if an assassin fired a gun at a person, God made the physics uh, such that the bullet would turn to rubber and just bounce off. Um, And so people might try to perpetrate evil, but it would never be possible to happen. Uh, Lewis said, and I agree, you know, that's just not not how things are. We we have a free will, and we're moral agents. And the, the mere fact that God holds us accountable for what we do is proof that, you know, we we uh, make moral choices, and we're, we're in a world of sin. It's a fallen world. Now, the solution to that problem is Jesus Christ, and that our sins can be forgiven through Christ, what he did on the cross, our lives, and even our desires can be changed by God's work in, our, in, in us. But um, the Paris attacks, sad as they are, are a, another reminder that there, there is moral evil in this world. You know, Craig, what, what makes it interesting is, uh, really, for 40 years since the sexual revolution of the 1970s and the skyrocket, skyrocketing divorce rate and uh, free sex, premarital sex, now the redefinition of marriage, basically the, the hedonistic track we've been on for 40 years has been sold to the culture based on the idea that there are no moral boundaries. I mean, there, there's no sin, there's nothing we're doing wrong, because there, there's no universal moral code. And yet, when something like this happens that clearly is evil, and we know it is, people cry, uh, this is immoral. 
Uh, and so our culture, you know, we can't have it both ways. Either there is a God that we answer to, and therefore we should live morally, or there's not a God that we answer to, and we, we are headed for anarchy. Um, clearly, we Christians, we know there is a God, and we want the whole world to know him. What about the argument, though, Dr. McFarland, that um, religion, and certainly I think demonstrably so in this case, religion is a major source of wars in the world, of evil in the world, and therefore people will be inclined to say this, therefore, is evidence to be sure that religion is evil. And, of course, they they paint this with a very broad brushstroke. They do. They do. In fact, even last night, I'm on the road traveling, and I stopped to get, um, you know, put fuel in a rental car, and I was talking to the guy at the gas station, and he was saying, well, you know, we need to be rid of all religion because this is proof that religion is evil. Um, you, you know, Christianity clearly is different than, than the world's religions. Religion is based on man trying to work his way to God. Christianity, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, is the story of God coming from heaven to earth uh, to pay for our sins on the cross. Christianity um, says, love your neighbor. Christianity says that we are to forgive our enemies. Um, Islam, on the other hand, that, that really, since its uh, birthing in the 600s, has been a, a violent religion. Uh, and there have been other totalitarian regimes, and uh, all manner. it's almost like an endless list of the crazy ideologies that have driven people to do pathological things. Um, We've got to, not only in our words, show that Christianity is different, but in our lives. And I I will say this, and it's been my privilege to write on this extensively um, for the last 2,000 years. Show me where uh, hospitals are built. Show me where wells are dug to provide water. Show me where uh, orphans are cared for, and the elderly and the infirm, where life is defended and the human condition improved. And I'll show you where Christianity is. Uh, look, look at America right now, the, the Syrian refugee issue, with um, something like 11 million uh, victims of the Syrian civil war over the last four years, and now 10,000 that uh, we're trying to figure out what to do with. And we can talk about the Syrian civil war if you want to, but here's the thing. Why is it that East is trying to come West? West is not trying to go East. It's because the West is built on a Judeo-Christian moral code. Um, In the West, we have cared for people uh, in times of crisis. In the West, we have uh, uh, welcomed the huddled masses with food, clothing, and shelter because The West was built on a Christian worldview that said, man is made in God's image, and when I'm honoring you, I'm honoring the one whose image you bear. Look look at the the Islamic world where life is cheap and one is rewarded uh, for bloodshed. That's not what the West, and certainly not what America was built on. And we must, to a new generation, remind people that uh, religion has spilled much blood, but the world is better for the Christian worldview that has said, love your neighbor and feed the hungry and forgive the oppressor. And so uh, all of this that we're seeing today, the world has become a powder keg. That's not proof that there is no God. It's proof that we need to return to the God we've abandoned. 
And, and certainly I think quite telling, as you point out, Dr. McFarland, that as we've seen this exodus uh, from uh, Syria in the wake of this civil war there, that overwhelmingly the largest number of refugees have all sought refuge in the Christian West, either in Western Europe or here in the United States. And isn't it ironic that if you take countries like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Dubai, United Arab Emirates, which are per capita significantly wealthier than even a country like the United States, that all of those very oil-rich, wealthy nations combined have welcomed less than half of the number of refugees that the United States alone has accepted. I think that's telling. We're going to take a time out. We're visiting today with Dr. Alex McFarland, exposing the 10 biggest myths about Christianity. We'll get back to some more examples as our conversation continues right after this. Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. Thank you, Craig. And this report is sponsored by PG&E. We have two separate accidents working in Sunnyvale, westbound 237. This is between the Lawrence Expressway and Middlefield Road. Uh, we have uh, one just past Fair Oaks, the other one just past Middlefield. That's been moved into the center divide. Cargo van and a car have collided in Milpitas, northbound 880. This is just past Dixon Landing Road. That one's still blocking the third lane from the left. Mountain View, it's a dump truck and a car involved in a crash. Eastbound 237. Uh, this is just past Great America, it's all over on the shoulder. Whether it's groceries, gas, money, or peace of mind, PG&E knows a little more goes a long way. That's why their care program can save you 20% or more on your energy bill every month. Apply today. Text CARE to 20283. That's C-A-R-E to 20283. Households must meet income or program eligibility requirements. That's traffic on AM 1100 KFAX. Hey, this is Matthew West, and I want to encourage you to visit NorCalChristianEvents.com for all the latest on the Christian events coming near you. Find events like The Road Show with Matthew West and 10th Avenue North in March of 2019, and also the California Women's Retreat in February with Kathy Tricoli and many others, and other events with Casting Crowns, Mac Powell, Big Daddy Weave, and many more at NorCalChristianEvents.com. And while you're there, check out our partners like Genesis Apologetics and Simpson University, all at NorCalChristianEvents.com. Our world needs caring professionals to make a positive impact in our communities. Simpson University's Master's in Counseling Psychology degree prepares you for a career in marriage and family therapy. Our award-winning faculty brings practical clinical expertise and research into the classroom. Attend classes in the evening and earn your degree in just two years. Be empowered to make a difference. Call today at 1-888-9-SIMPSON or visit us online at simpsonu.edu. You chose to serve to protect the American dream. Now you have a dream of your own, and it's our turn to serve you. Whether you need capital to start or expand your own business, or just want some expert advice, Veteran Launch can help. Veteran Launch has funded more than 70 veteran-owned companies with $8.7 million. Visit VeteranLaunch.org to learn how we can help you achieve your business goals. And sign up for our free networking event in the Sacramento area November 12th. Details at VeteranLaunch.org slash Veterans Day. Life has its ups and downs. The ups are easy, but often the downs can feel overwhelming. Through God's Word, you can not only cope with those difficult trials, you can conquer them. 
Join us each Saturday morning at 1030 when Pastor Lita Reeves hosts Victorious Living. Pastor Lita uses biblical principles to help you navigate through life's hardships and live the abundant life. Victorious Living, Saturday mornings at 1030, right here on AM 1100 KFAX. Are you a responsible person who finds yourself growing deeper in credit card debt? Then get ready for a toll-free number that will put you on a path to financial recovery. Trinity Debt Management will consolidate your accounts and work with your creditors. You'll save thousands and become debt-free for keeps. If your debt has you down, we should talk. Call Trinity at 1-800-936-5496. 1-800-936-5496. 1-800-936-5496. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to The Conversation. Dr. Alex McFarland, our guest tonight. He is a religion and culture expert, author of a new book called Exposing the Ten Biggest Myths About Christianity, The God You Thought You Knew. That's the title of the book, by the way, the book newly published by Bethany House. You'll find it online at alexmcfarland.com or through the usual suspects, including Amazon. Let's talk about another big one. We often get this argument and Richard Dawkins, I mean, at all, seemed to hammer away the hardest at this, that Christianity and modern science today are completely incompatible, particularly when you look at this from the viewpoint of the origins of man. Mm-hmm. Yes, we get that a lot. Uh, but really, uh, what I always ask when, whenever I hear that is if somehow science has disproven God, I, I say, well, you know, which branch of the sciences are you speaking of? And uh, which scientific discovery? Because, you know, every branch of the sciences, you know, whether you're talking about one of the uh, branches of biology or chemistry or physics or forensic pathology, I mean, there are these sciences, and every every uh, department of the, the sciences has its own, you know, playbook and methodologies. Um, which scientific discovery do you presume has, quote, disproven God? Uh, and, you know, in fact, the, the four basic forces of physics, um, you know, gravity and electromagnetism and the strong and weak nuclear forces, uh, I was at a luncheon Saturday with a, a couple of very um, esteemed scientists who said, you know, we still really don't know why these things are as they are. Uh, why is the universe uh, structured to sustain life? And they call it the anthropic principle, why uh, the planet Earth seems uniquely fine-tuned for human life. Uh, if anything, the discoveries of science point to the fact that there had to be an intelligent creator to not only uh, cause uh, the origin of matter and the creation of the universe, the beginning of the universe, but to fine-tune, to orchestrate the conditions such that life is possible. So, uh, in no way has science disproven God. Uh, in fact, Craig, let me give you let me give you an example. Um, for instance, uh, evolution and most most science departments in American universities and many schools are operated from a com- completely naturalistic uh, presupposition that only the physical empirical world is, is is all there is. But evolution, for instance, which supposedly uh, you know, depends on gene mutations uh, to give all the varieties of life that we see. Uh, well, gene mutations 
can, uh, you know, rearrange the existing genetic material or cause loss of information, but a mutation doesn't add any new information to the genome. And if you want fins to become feathers and feathers to become fingers, you have to introduce new information to the genome, which we've never observed mutations doing. So uh, naturalism, and specifically uh, Darwinian evolution, is, is really a faith position because it's not observable. It never has been. Well, this, in fact, of course, is one of the significant scientific shortcomings of all of this, that oftentimes we've heard uh, these glowing reports of the evidence they find of the uh, the evolutionary chain down through the centuries or millennia, and then we come to more recent recorded time where we have not only a very accurate fossil record, um, we have other records up to including photographic evidence going back over the course of 100, 150 years, and yet there's there's no demonstrative uh, continued evidence for this evolutionary process, which makes you wonder is if all the evolution took place at the front end and on the backside here, there's nothing that doesn't make sense. It, it, it's not logical from the standpoint of it seems as if then this, this, uh, this ability of, of, of the world of creation, on the wrong term, I guess, for the evolutionists, uh, of the Big Bang to continue to evolve itself seems somehow gotten stuck. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, we learn about the Cambrian explosion, that life appears in the fossil record fully formed. It was my privilege a year ago to spend 11 days in the Grand Canyon, and we saw many, many fossils, uh, including a fossilized um, log, uh, the, the main structure of a tree that was probably 25, 30 feet long, fossilized through, quote, millions of years of strata. That uh, And by the way, I believe the fossil record is the result of the flood. L- let me just say this. I, I definitely do believe in a global flood. I think the topography of the land and the, the Earth's geologic um, structure and makeup um, looks like uh, a worldwide flood. And the fossils were created through uh, rapid burial in the mud, the water, the silt, and intense pressure. But all of the fossils are always complete, fully formed uh, organisms. Uh, The Cambrian explosion, life appears fully formed. Uh, And any of the so-called transitional forms that ostensibly were one species morphing into another, uh, fragments of teeth, fragments of bone, this huge inference that that I believe is imposed over um, uh, fragments that have been found. And, you know, it's, it's funny how, you know, entire creatures and villages have been constructed out of just some little fragments here and there, and there, there's wild disagreement uh, and just much speculation about what this or that thing might have been. So the question is, has there ever been uh, empirical, verified proof of evolution? And the answer is no. What, what's interesting is 156 years into Darwinism now, you know, because uh, uh, by the way, I've got I've got Origin of the Species and Descent of Man. I've got a second edition, Descent of Man, and I've got a, um, a sixth edition of Origin of the Species. That in in only 20 years after its first publication, it had been through six or seven printings, very influential. And basically, what we've had for a century and a half uh, have been voices like Richard Dawkins that just insist Darwinism is a fact. Uh, to dare question it is, is ignorance or arrogance. 
but the evidence is not there. It's like Jerry Maguire, show me the money. Well, show me the evidence, and the evidence is, is just not there. Well, moreover, I mean, not only do we find this, this what appears to be, as you're suggesting, this, 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 this jump in the fossil record that probably requires a greater degree of faith to accept all of that than it does to simply look at uh, the biblical Genesis account of the origins of man. Uh, then, too, I've always found it quite curious, and I have yet to have a humanist scientist be able to give me a solid answer for this, other short of than just a lot of gobbledygook when I pose the question. So if we want to prescribe to the Big Bang Theory that suggests that at one point uh, this big explosion took place that created all matter, and you're telling me that out of this then, out of chaos came organization. Why is it there's only one record, according to what you're telling me, of that ever happening? When is the last time you read a story where somebody blew something up and out of it came a building or a bridge? Uh, or a road was suddenly constructed once they dynamited some rocks with a with TNT. The fact of the matter is there's 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 no account everywhere anywhere of destruction of chaos creating organization. Uh, that's a great point, Craig. I mean, we have never seen chaos be the mother of order. Something else that is, I mean, I know this is getting rather philosophical, and frankly, I appreciate the chance to talk this way, but. Uh, we've never observed uh, inanimate matter developing consciousness. Let's just say somehow there was a primordial soup, and we don't know where it came from or how it got there. And let's let's just say somehow some uh, proteins and amino acids uh, evolved and life somehow began. How did consciousness develop? Because, you know, right now if I say 2 plus 2 and everybody thinks, okay, 4, all right, your, your brain, with all of the neurons and synapses, there's the physical tissue that is your brain, but the thoughts that you're thinking and the reasoning, uh, that's not the same as the tissue. So there's, it's what um, scholars call the mind-body problem. We have a body, and even if by some you know, happenstance that evolved, what is the origin of consciousness? A Richard Dawkins, a materialist, has no answer for the origin of consciousness, and then how did um, what we call individuation, how did multiple centers of consciousness develop? Because, you know, you're Craig Roberts, you're thinking your thoughts, I'm Alex McFarlane, I'm somebody different. Uh, there's no, there's no, from an evolutionary standpoint, there's no accounting for uh, consciousness, mind, uh, intelligence, personality. Um, it, it's been said that man is a soulish creature. We're, we're, we're in an evolutionary mindset, just a, a, a moist robot. But we're, but we're not that. There is, there's something that is the real us beyond just the physical tissue. Sure, and not only in terms of personality, but things like you're suggesting, like individual choice. I mean, uh, is it conceivable for the bacterium flagellum just to one day wake up and say, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore. I think I'm going to go do something differently. Well, it just <laughs> the reality is there's never any evidence anywhere for that ever happening. And you're right. It, 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 for, for Stephen Hawkins, um, uh, Richard Dawkins, it provides a, a tremendous quandary, doesn't it? Well, it, it really does, and I'm glad you bring up the bacterial flagellum because uh, uh, <laughs> there's what um, what Michael Behe uh, calls irreducible complexity, that you've got 
um, a, a motor, a shaft, a propeller, uh, basically bushings, and, and all of these things at an infinitesimally small level in, in the cell, uh, the bacteria has a, a propeller-like tail that can spin at 100,000 rotations per minute and then reverse direction in, in a fraction of a second. And if even one of the parts were not there, uh, it, it would not be functional. So how did uh, this irreducibly complex, it's like a mousetrap, seven parts in a mousetrap. If you have even one of the parts missing, it's inoperable. So how did these parts evolve in the absence of the other? Because, see, all of the parts are interdependent. How did they evolve in the absence of the other? Listen, I've had debates and dialogues, and, and some of the hardcore evolutionists will say, well, it's an enigma. I'm like, okay, fair enough. Then you are a person of faith. Um, if, if you're willing, all of the things that, you know, when, when your naturalistic worldview hits a wall and can go no farther, they'll say, well, it's an enigma. Okay, well, good for you. Uh, you certainly do have a lot of faith, because we've never, we've never seen something come from nothing. We've never observed uh, chaos bring order. Uh, we've never observed inanimate matter develop consciousness. We've never observed information come from uh, a non-intelligent source, and the DNA is information. So my, my point in this is it's much more plausible uh, when we look at something like the Big Bang, and scholars wonder what was before the, the Big Bang. You know, there was an infinitely dense bit of matter and energy, and it exploded outward in all directions. Uh, well, what, whatever was before the Big Bang that caused the universe, it had to be beyond time, it had to be immaterial, it had to be all-powerful, it had to have uh, in, at least intelligence, because there's so much order and structure in the universe. Um, many have said it, it has to be something uh, analogous to a super-intelligence. Well, when they talk about what was before the universe that was the cause of this great big effect, they're giving the attributes of God. And we say, okay, Big Bang, great. We know who the banger was. Yeah, I at uh, one time listened to one of these debates amongst a couple of these uh, scientists going on and on. And uh, after a while, having headed down that very same road, I thought to myself, if this man would just take a moment, take two steps backwards, he'd realize that his attempt to try and explain away how man came to be is actually providing further evidence for the existence of what he calls, uh, you know, something that's the enigma, and we would put, we would assign to that definition as uh, what we know today as God. Our thanks to Dr. Alex McFarland. Some great insights. A wonderful book. One that I think you'll certainly uh, learn about, uh, learn from, and uh, also use as a wonderful tool in sharing your faith with others. The God you thought you knew, exposing the ten biggest myths about Christianity. Newly published by Bethany House. And again, you can get uh, information on the web at alexmcfarland.com or order it online through amazon.com. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to spend some time in this portion of the program talking about power. 
Now, at least you think we're going to dive into a bit of a thesis on how to reduce your energy bills and (laughs) save money. Uh, No, not quite that kind of power, but power nevertheless. A topic that while most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about in a direct fashion, we nevertheless are engaged in it. Some of us exercise it. Others have a thirst or a yearning for it. It's something that we think about at certain levels, and yet we have this very odd relationship with power. We know certainly that the old adage, what is it, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what of our relationship to this topic of power from a spiritual standpoint? My next guest tonight has taken some time to dive deeper into this very equation, and he details his findings and really kind of kind of pulling back, so to speak, the, the layers of the onion to help us better understand our relationship to power inside the pages of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. It is written by author, executive editor of Christianity Today, Andy Crouch. And Andy, thanks so much for being on the program with us. Thank you, Craig. I'm delighted to be here. Fascinating topic. It's something that, as I say, well, we probably don't get up every day and think specifically about this topic. It's one that we're we're tied into on a day by day basis, and a lot of us find ourselves even in this in this struggle for or against power of one sort or another, uh, literally daily, don't we? It's part of being a human being. I think it's actually part of being a living. Any living creature uh, has some kind of power because power in the most basic sense, it's just the ability to make a difference in the world, to make some kind of change in the world. And if you're alive, you're doing that one way or another. But as human beings, we have much more complex kinds of power than other creatures do, other parts of creation do. And that's ultimately because we're, we're made in the image of God in, in a way that other creatures aren't. And I think that's why every human being, um, you know, you mentioned a yearning for power. Every human being kind of wants room to, to make something of value and worth, but then also this has become very distorted uh, by our own sin and the ways that we've uh, distanced ourselves from God. Indeed, we see uh, laid out literally from the Garden of Eden uh, the capacity of power to either do good or do evil, and then it seems as if it's been a, a history-long, lifelong struggle for mankind in trying to deal with well, what exactly is our relationship to power, what do we do with it, why do we yearn for it, how do we corrupt it, how do we drive it in the right direction so that it can, in fact, do more good than it does evil. You know, when you, when you lay it out like that, you realize, in a way, the whole story of Scripture is a story about power. It's about the original power that human beings were meant to have. They're made in the image of God. They're the climax of creation in Genesis 1. And they're given dominion. You know, that's a power word over the whole creation. These very frail, vulnerable creatures, just like you and me, are, are told that they're to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and, you know, all this stuff that pre-technological humanity couldn't directly control. And yet they're given this vision that they're there to represent the Creator in the midst of creation. But then something goes very wrong, and I think you'd sum it up by saying they try to uh, declare, depend, uh, declare independence from God. They try to separate themselves from God and use their power for themselves. And the power that we were meant to have, which was meant to be the, for the flourishing of the whole world, ends up being kind of turned in on our own uh, benefit, our own self-protection, And then the question becomes, how is God going to intervene to 
set this story right, and that in many ways is, is the story of the rest of the Bible. And it really is amazing, as you point out. I mean, literally, in the opening chapter of Genesis, we see the first action of God, a display of yeah. His power, <laughs> as He engages in His creative power to bring about planet Earth. Then we see, later on, once mankind is about the scene, uh, first an account of the power struggle between Lucifer and God himself, right. and then later on, man's power struggle as we engage in this battle in the Garden of Eden. And it seems as if this this issue of kind of a, a power struggle with God or against God has kind of been a component from day one, hasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And this was actually true even in the world where the, where the book of Genesis was first written down, because the other creation stories that were told by the, the gods of Babylon or the, you know, the religion of Babylon all said that the world began with a conflict. Uh, they were all conflict stories. The amazing thing about Genesis 1 is it does not have, it doesn't begin with conflict. The conflict comes in later, and the, the root conviction of Genesis 1 is that when God uses his creative power, it brings only abundance. It's not kind of a zero-sum game where if I win, you lose, or if you win, I lose. Instead, you get more and more flourishing. Uh, what happens, though, when the man and the woman are tempted, <laughs> and when they give into that, and when that sets in motion really history as we know it, is power becomes about conflict, and it becomes about competition. It's no longer about mutual flourishing, where we actually both could win. It's about one of us is going to, to dominate mm. uh, the other, or one force is going to dominate the other. And we start to believe that that's the realist form of power, that the, the most real power is the power that can make you do something you don't want to do, rather than the power that can call into being a world or new kinds of creativity, new kinds of culture uh, that actually benefits everyone. So what's fascinating about this, then, is we really get pulled into this topic, Andy, of power in relationship to whether it's being used for uh, malevolent purposes or, on the other hand, malevolent purposes, mm -hmm. that impacts every relationship that we have. I mean, it's certainly it, it, with God, I mean, sin is w what better description of the power struggle yeah. uh, that exists between mankind and God uh, than to see sin and, and how that power fight's going on. And not just, though, on the vertical plane, but even on the horizontal plane in our relationships. Yeah. I mean, think of the young teenager who's rebelling against his parents, and all of a sudden there's this power struggle that we see that's being displayed there. E even the friction between husband and wife and relationships at that level oftentimes are, are demonstrative of this fight over power. They really are about power, and, uh, and, and I think that's because in many ways it's the, most, it's the most fundamental thing we're given to work with as human beings, either for good or for bad. Um, and so you do find it in every relationship, actually, every workplace, every church, every family, and, and most of us, realistically, the place where most of us have the most power is in our family relationships, especially if we're parents. But even, even as, as those of us who are parents know, children have tremendous power in their relationship with their parents. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, that's why so much of the Bible story is the story of families that either get it somewhat right, never entirely right, uh, and sometimes get it terribly wrong. Um, and, you know, again, we often think, you know, when we think of power, I think we often think of, you know, politics or perhaps military power, and those are very real. But when I started to dive into this issue, I realized actually all of us confront these issues every single day. I confronted in my own home 
not just when I'm out doing allegedly powerful things, but even in choosing how I relate to my wife and my children, my neighbors. It happens at every scale of human society. Well, even at, deeper than that, perhaps, Andy, is that the power struggle that goes on internally. I mean, look, for <laughs> example, it, Paul talked about, you know, wow. I, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know to do good, and yet I do it not. Daily I have to die unto the flesh. Don't we see demonstrated there, in that sense, an internal power struggle going on? Do we do, yield to God? Do we do yield to the devil? Who's going to kind of get control here? I think that's an amazing observation. And what it always, I think, uh, for many people, the real question in life is not actually does God exist. I think most people know God exists. And Paul says even those who don't believe that sort of suppress the truth. They still know the truth. But the real question is, is God good? <laughs> and, and especially if I serve God, well, does that mean I have to give up things I want? Does that mean I have to give up what's good? And the, the root of, of every abuse of power is the idea that, that we can't both get something good. Either I and God, I can't, God can't get what's you know, good for God and good for me, or you and I, if we get locked in a power struggle, we start to believe either I win or you win. And when that enters into our relationship with God, we've basically believed the very thing the serpent says in Genesis uh, 3, which is God's actually jealous of his power, and he doesn't want you to have all of it, so you better eat that fruit so that you'll have what God doesn't want you to have. And that's the fundamental lie, that God wants you to have something that would actually be good for you, but that God doesn't want you to have. And that's that's an amazing point that you make there, because there is an aspect of this power that we define in the flesh. And I mean, we just bring up the topic. We think of power. It's the energy to drive to do something, to accomplish something. And we often think that, well, the greatest display of power is when we're flexing our muscles to use power, failing perhaps to recognize that it's somehow there's, there's another aspect that can show how powerful we can be that in the flesh might seem to be weak, but in the spiritual realm is in fact very powerful. We'll talk a bit about that too as we continue our conversation today. Andy Crouch on the line with us today. He, executive editor of Christianity Today and the author of a new book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues here on KFAX. Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dissecting today in this edition of Lifeline all of the power struggles that we see at so many levels within our relationships, within our history, uh, really going back to the beginning of time tonight with Andy Crouch. Um, He, of course, does not go quite back to the beginning of time, but he's been around for a while, enough to be able to be executive editor of Christianity Today, a prolific writer. One of his other best-selling books includes Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling. We're talking today, though, about his latest book, newly published by InterVarsity Press, called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Interesting, Andy, when we talk about the ways in which sometimes power gets distorted, we always have that sense that power's about getting my way. And if I just get my way, I'm somebody that's very powerful. And yet sometimes surrendering parts of ourselves, while perceived perhaps in the flesh to be weakness, actually can be quite powerful, can't it? Yes, and, uh, you know, it's amazing how often you, how much time you spend in the first chapter of Genesis when you start thinking about this, because, of course, the first chapter of Genesis begins with 
God, the Creator, who we know as Christians is three persons, three in one, and there's that interesting moment in Genesis 1 where God actually says, let us make humankind. And that uh, Creator is already complete. He has his way, if you want to put it that way, already, without making the world. And yet this God desires to bring into being a world that's going to have all of these other creatures, starting with very simple creatures uh, in the first days of creation, as, it's, as the story is told, but then culminating in these creatures who are made in his image. He actually wants partners. And so when we think about the highest form of power, I think we do often think, boy, if I really had power, I would just say, you know, do it, and people would do it. <laughs> they would basically be little... Uh, robots obeying my commands. Um, and this is what we think it would be like to be God, to be able to just move things around and move uh, persons around without regard to what they want. But it seems like the deeper form of power is actually to call into being other, other persons who can actually collaborate with you, because that's what God essentially invites these creatures made in his image to do, to be his representatives in the midst of creation. So you know, we really have to get away from this idea that the, the realist form of power is control or command and realize that actually the realist form of power is creation and collaboration. That's when you have the most powers, when other people actually take up their own creative abilities. And, and that understanding, that perspective is, is critically important, isn't it? Because if we're going to redeem power then there has to be something worthy of being redemptive there. And so often, as I say, I think, Andy, a lot of us mistake power for meaning that means you get to do whatever you want to do in order to other people around to do your bidding, which, as we're learning, is absolutely not the case at all. So then yeah. at the end of the day, it's understanding that perspective that allows us to see the good of power and how this can be then redeemed for God's purposes. That was one of the big breakthroughs for me, was when I realized we often talk about power as if it's the same thing as dominance or domination. And actually, that domination is a, is a very weak form of power. If all I have over you is the ability to make you do things that you don't want to do, I actually have very little real power. And it's interesting uh, you mention that. I remember thinking back to a lot of the media reports, for example, over Ariel Castro. The, this is that uh, guy there in Cleveland that kidnapped Amanda uh, Berry and, and wow. two other girls. Uh, and, and you would read the story on the surface and see the way which he uh, he'd held these girls in, in the basement of this house with uh, wire ties around their wrists and chains and everything else. And you think, well, there's demonstrative of this guy being so powerful, wielding all this power over these girls. And yet the deeper you get into the psyche in the story, oh, you begin know. to realize, no, this guy's not powerful at all. In fact, he's pretty powerless. Yes. And, the, and you know, Paul uh, will use the language of impri imprisoned or slave. You know, a slave especially in the ancient world, with someone who had absolutely no power of their own, completely dependent on their master. And Paul says, if we really get, gave into that idea of domination, if we got what we think we want, which Ariel Castro did kind of get for a time, what he thought he wanted, the ability to dominate, we actually become slaves uh, of sin. We, we don't end up being masters. And that's why the serpent's promise in the garden is so... Um, appealing and so deceptive, because actually once the man and woman get what they want, what we want, to be like God without having to be in relationship with God, they actually find that they don't have what they wanted at all. 
Um, and that's what where domination leads. It, it actually, strangely enough, leads to the the one who would be master ends up being becoming completely so mastered by it. Really, Satan is in the process of distorting power then from the very beginning and all the time. Yeah. I mean, think for example about Jesus there during the forty days in the wilderness uh-huh. and the number of times that he was tempted. And and I always read those passages and thought to myself, Satan, you're an idiot. I mean, to begin with, you're going to say that you're going to offer very God himself here, if you just bow down and worship me, I give you all of the kingdoms of the earth, and so on and so forth. And I always thought to myself, how can you give God what he already has? <laughs> it's all his to begin with. He created it all. So how can you give him what he already has? Yes, but, you know, in a way, Jesus is the only human being who has heard those temptations and not at some level given in. Mm-hmm. Now, not all of us uh, have heard the promise of every single kingdom, but all of us have that kind of twinge of an idea that we're made for more than we have. And, and that's true. Uh, we, you know, we're made in the image of God. We're made for much more than we currently experience. But Satan insinuates this idea that there's a shortcut to it, that it involves domination, that it involves kind of cheating God of what God, only God can give. And Jesus is the only human being who's ever realized that's actually not, uh, that bargain will not actually work out. It's actually a lie. And if, if he went through with it, he would find that Satan had mastered him. And instead, he came out of that temptation able to, to say no. Bring us back to this full circle of the issue of um, bringing power back into the balance. First, to understand mm-hmm. that it, it, it needs to first and foremost be used for the capacity to do good. And we see, when we really mentioned this even from the very get-go, as we see this in Scripture, the very first acts of God are crea- is the demonstration of creative power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think one question to ask is, you know, with whatever power I have today, you know, you mentioned I have a, I have a title, I'm executive editor of a magazine called Christianity Today. Well, that's a position of power. So the question is, I think there's a couple of questions. One is, who am I using that power for? And if the answer is I'm using it mostly for my own benefit to, uh, you know, increase my own notoriety or fame or my own wealth or, you know, any number of things, then it's pr- I'm probably going to end up using other people for my ends. But it might be possible to use even, you know, positions like that actually for others flourishing. And I think in the case of people who, say, own a business, so that it could be a small business or have a position like I do where you are in charge of some people, you, you actually are given power not for your own flourishing, but for their flourishing. So one of the most important questions we can ask is, who is flourishing because I have power? <laughs> and if the answer is me and mine, that isn't very much like the true God. But if the answer is the people who actually are under my care are flourishing, they're becoming more of what they're meant to be, they're expressing their own power, they're getting to do things they, they wouldn't have gotten to do otherwise, then I think we're on the path to a much better use of power. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Andy Crouch is with us. He's the author of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Now, when we come back after a quick timeout, we're going to go deeper into this topic, uh, how we can go about utilizing the creative and benevolent power that God has given to all of us um, in order to use it for his glory, to go deeper in our relationships. That was just with God on the uh, the vertical plane, but with others on the horizontal plane as well, as Andy just referred to. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation right after this. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Well, as we're discovering in our conversation tonight with Andy Crouch, and certainly displayed throughout so much of Scripture, uh, power can be used in very many good ways. We think of creative power. We think of the power that has been given to us unto salvation through Christ's substitutionary work on the cross. Uh, And yet, as we see the good side, the good aspects of power, we also recognize there's a power struggle. There's a balance between power being good, used for good, or power being good, used for evil. How do we go about harnessing, harnessing power for the use for good, for the glory of the kingdom, and learn how to become, I guess ultimately, Andy Crouch, trustees of power? We're, we're, we're kind of entrusted to this. It's just what we do with it, huh? <laughs> yes, that's right. And, you know, the title of my book is Playing God, and we usually say that like it's a bad thing, uh, and it is a really bad thing, if you're not playing the true God. But the Really, the question is not whether you're playing God or not, it's which God are you playing. You're going to play some image, you're going to bear some image with your life. Your life will either reflect the image of a false God, the God of domination, the God who has to get his own way, or it will reflect the the image of the true God, the God who, when things went so terribly wrong, was even willing to give up his own son uh, to bear pain rather than inflict pain. Um, so it really comes down to w- what you believe ultimate reality is about. And if you believe in, that the Christian gospel is true, it's going to change, I think, how you use the power you have and also who you use it for. You won't use it primarily for your own benefit, and you will use it, especially, it seems to me, for those who are the, the most vulnerable the least and the last and, and the lost that Jesus talked about so many times, Jesus kind of reorients our use of our power towards people who can never pay us back necessarily, who can't benefit us, but who our exercise of power can actually help them flourish. This is kind of a delicate dance, isn't it? Because we see, for example, um, examples of uh, servant leaders. These are individuals who, who have power, maybe within an organization that they can hire and they can fire, things of this sort, uh, and, and yet they wish to, instead of putting that power to use to demonstrate how much power they have, rather mm. sharing it with others to, to empower them. It's interesting how uh, perhaps the, the, there's a, a certain power of shared power, isn't there? Absolutely. And I think that's a, a wonderful model. And uh, in a way, you know, I think power really is, it's supposed to be used to serve. Um, that is to say, it's supposed to be used to help others flourish who would not have flourished if you didn't use your power. So if you have one of those positions, your responsibility is to make sure that other people flourish. And that's, in a way, the deepest, I think, sense of what serving well, is. Well, we, and we certainly see that, you know, throughout Scripture. I mean, for example, God is a righteous and holy God who created us, could have easily have said, well, my creation has offended me, and therefore I'm going to use my power to punish and abolish my creation. Instead, he used his power to bring about victory over death and sin through the work that his son did on the cross. It's amazing. And, you know, as amazing as creation is, in some ways, the new creation Paul talks about, which is the result of the the giving of God and God's Son on the cross, is even more amazing. The new creation is just extraordinary that God reaches into this broken world and doesn't act simply to wipe things out or to even to command and control everything but starts recreating right in the midst of it and ultimately is going to make everything new, it says in Revelation. That's real power. <laughs> so the ability to make all things new, to wipe tears from people's eyes, from everyone's eyes. Um, and we, of course, we only get a little taste of that uh, in our own lives. We're only given a tiny measure of that. 
and any more than we have would overwhelm us. But I do think we have access to that kind of recreating power, as well as the sort of original creativity that was human beings' birthright as image bearers. How do we start this process in terms of, I think, probably just evaluating where we're at in this power struggle Uh, that we have with God? And, uh, of course, that that then spills over into every other relationship. How do we go about analyzing, Andy, the way we're using our power, either to good or to Uh, evil, and then learn how to rebalance it so that it becomes a, a redemption of power? I think that's a fantastic question. And, you know, I would start with our, uh, with our neighbor who we have seen, as James says. James says, you know, how can you love God who you haven't seen when you can't love your neighbor who you have seen? And we can sometimes be very clever about rationalizing our relationship with God, but our neighbor sees how we treat them. And I'm thinking maybe not so much our next-door neighbor, though it could be that, but the people who are closest to us, I think the place to start is to ask very, to create an environment where you can honestly ask and honestly hear, how am I using whatever power I have? Um, and so husbands should ask this of their wives, uh, and wives should ask this of their husbands. It can start at home. It can happen in the workplace to say, you know, I have power in this position, perhaps, and asking the people who are affected by that, how am I doing? And making sure that they can a- answer honestly. Now, that takes time. That takes building trust. But I think other people... Well, the other thing that happens, most of us don't think we have very much power. But when you ask other people, what are some of my gifts? What are areas where when I do this, it really creates things? They will they'll give you insight into the power you actually have, even if you don't have a title that seems like it has a lot of power or a position that seems like it has a lot of power. Now, let's talk then about relationship to bringing that power balance back in our, in our relationship with God. Mm. So then, I, so once we've started to uh, hear from our neighbors <laughs> how we're doing, I, I think there's a huge place for, you know, what often the Christian tradition is called the spiritual disciplines, because the spiritual disciplines actually put us in a very powerless place. When I fast, or when I am silent, or when I pray alone, there's no one to impress. <laughs> It's not something I'm very good at. I think the interesting thing about the spiritual disciplines, like fasting, is any, any human being, uh, any healthy adult human being can do that. It's not hard to do, and yet it's impossible to do it well. When you seriously take up a discipline of fasting, you discover how, how uh, sort of uh, accustomed you are to filling every little need with food, and you discover how much you need God. And so I think the spiritual disciplines... Are, are ways that sort of train us to realize how dependent we've become on our own sense of ourselves and our own sense of power. And they, they sort of lay us open before God, and it's amazing what you discover about yourself in prayer as you practice these disciplines. And at the end of the day, it's not that God wants to strip us of power. It's how we channel it, how we direct that, how we use that power. He wants us to have true power, and more, I think, than we ever really imagined. Uh, you know, Paul, when he's trying to deal with the church in Corinth, and they're you know, taking each other to court, <laughs> he says, look, don't you know we're going to judge angels? I mean, there's an immense amount of power that is waiting to be conferred on these redeemed image bearers that God wants to bring back into his creation, the way it was originally meant to be. So God, you know, this is the... the the great lie is that God wants to take power away from us and keep us from having things we want, 
<laughs> when in fact God has more for us than we could ever imagine. But it's a matter of becoming the kind of uh, image bearers who can bear the weight of that and who can not be uh, kind of corrupted by it. To whom much is given, much is expected. Yeah, yeah. And that really kind of brings us full circle on this topic tonight. I sure appreciate you diving into this, Andy, because it's one that I think, you know, again, we we look at all mankind and we see a power struggle going on. We look at history, we see a power struggle going on. We look at Scripture, we see a power struggle going on. We look at sin in our lives with God and we see a power struggle going on. It's not that power is a bad thing. I mean, Thank goodness for power. We wouldn't be on the radio right now if it wasn't for power. And yet if I walked up to one of the towers and decided to wrap my arms around it, I could also find out that the same power that's allowing our voices to get out all over the San Francisco Bay Area uh, could strike me dead in the wrong fashion in a quick second. So it really comes down to our relationship with power and what we do with it. Exactly. And the good news is God is at work in all this. And uh, that very thing that can electrocute, (laughs) and in a way did electrocute his son, right? His son suffered the worst that human power can do. That God can even overcome that and has something amazing on the other side of it that really brings a blessing to, to the world. And that's what I think the hope that we can have as we realize that power is everywhere, uh, but, but God's power to redeem and recreate and restore is everywhere as well. You, you might initially hear the topic and say, well, this is a good book. I'm going to get a copy from my boss. <laughs> um, or I have a husband or a wife or whomever that seems to be on a power trip. But really, all of us struggle at one level or another with power, trying to redefine what our relationship with power is, and then to learn that this is not something that um, should be shunned, per se, that in fact it's a gift from God. How do we, though, redeem it for his purposes? You'll find some great insights, (coughs) pardon me, inside the pages of Andy Crouch's new book called simply Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. The new book, again, published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as um, all the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc. Andy Crouch, thanks so much for being with us. Great book, great conversation. There's Andy Crouch, executive editor of Christianity Today, author of the new book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.